0: The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. Do have some friends here this this Sunday? I've been discipling a couple all the way on the west coast. God bless them, Lord. Right? Know that. Friends of mine, Kylie and Alexander, are here, so it's cool. They've been joining online and are in town, and so excited to have them here. It's amazing to me when you start to walk in discipleship how the gospel can travel beyond the church uh, four walls and go into all kinds of different places. And so I've been so encouraged to walk with them over the last uh, few weeks and see how the Lord is moving in their lives um, but thankful they're here today. Last week, we learned about um, the effects of taking the plunge. When you plunge beneath the cleansing fountain, there are some things that happen to you in- internally, um, and they, they change you, like your hatred for sin. That, that didn't used to be there, and all of a sudden, that's there, and understanding that people who have not plunged beneath the fountain, they don't have that in them, and that's, that's healthy to understand when you're interacting with people. And so today uh, we come to the last chapter of Zechariah, chapter fourteen. And most theologians agree that it's probably one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible to interpret. <laughs> so that's encouraging when you're studying. see that and go, oh, wow. Um, but the Lord has been faithful, man, and I like he just kind of turned the lights on for me and showed me um, some things that how I see this and the interpretation that I make, Uh, upon this last chapter of Zechariah, one of the things that makes it so difficult to interpret is that everything we've been looking uh, at up to this point, like there's been a lot of stuff that has been fulfilled prophecy. So we can look back and go, man, this this is prophesied about Jesus, that he would come in this way, and he in fact came in this way, and and this is a prophecy that God's talking about. He's going to use these surrounding nations to accomplish his will, and we learned about Alexander the Great and his campaign and what happened there in that moment. And so it it becomes a little easier to interpret some of it because a lot of the prophecy has been fulfilled. When we come to chapter 14, um, it concerns future events that have yet to be fulfilled, and they have physical effects. And so we look at and we study this, and we're going to see a lot of the physical impact of things that are going to happen out in the future. But there also are present-day um, effects or realities that happen spiritually. And so I've kind of shared with you my view of eschatology of how I, how I see the end times is that there's a lot of physical, literal stuff that's going to happen um, that has to do with the physical aspects of um, nature and physical bodies and things of that nature. And then there are at the same time is an actual fulfillment going on spiritually that are happening through God's people. And they show sort of a, um, we call it when we're, when we're studying the word and, and like in formal education, it would be called typology. And that would be like types of Christ. (laughs) So I'm kind of, I'm kind of making up my, um, own word here, but I think that, that, uh, the way that the Lord is kind of showing me some stuff is I'm calling it prophecy. So instead of prophecy, it's a type of prophecy. So like what, what we see, a lot of the things happening, um, they happen as a type of prop- prophecy in the church, in the body of Christ. And then there's actual fulfillment that happens out in the future. And so today we're going to jump in, man, we have a lot of verses, and I'm going to share a, a, quite a bit of scripture with you, but I, I think you're going to walk away, if it has any kind of an impact on you like it had on me, you're going to walk away really encouraged, and you may, you may want to shout today, bro. You got to shout it? Somebody got to shout? Oh, there's a shout. <laughs> Who is that? Who's doing that? Oh, that's Sean. That makes sense. <laughs> I thought it was Ron Lynch over there. I was like, I can't believe Ron's shouting. Oh, it's not Ron, it's Sean. Uh, anyway, let's jump into uh, Zechariah chapter 14, and, and what I'm going to do is I'll read a few verses and tell you what I, what I see happening here and what this means. And so verse 1, it says, um, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. And the city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. It's a bad situation for the city of Jerusalem. And so I think what is being said there is that Jesus will allow the city to be assaulted in the future. There's coming a time in the future where the city of Jerusalem will be assaulted in a very, um, a very mean spirit. Like it'll just be bad times for this city, and so a day is coming where things will appear to Jerusalem. They will appear and feel hopeless. It'll feel like a hopeless time. I mean, that description there is bad. Like, it's, it's bad what's going to happen to the women. It's bad what's going to happen to um, the, the possessions that people have. Even a lot of the people will be taken away from the city. And so, to the best of my understanding, the way that I see um, prophecy is that during the end, when we get to um, prior to the Lord returning, there's going to be a mass revival of Jews. Like Jewish people who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the lights will come on for them, as they have come on for the church um, and for us. Like that's what happens when you get saved, is you understand that Jesus was the Messiah. You understand even that your sin put him on the cross, and so we recognize that that we did what that um, through our sin that it was necessary for him to be crucified on the cross. But but literal Israel, they participated. They they were the ones that actually set up the plan and ensured that Jesus was executed. Now, we know that they didn't take his life from him. Nobody could take Jesus's life from him. He laid it down on his own accord, but they played a role in that. And so uh, they will come to a, a, there will come to a time where there will be a mass number of Jewish people who will recognize that nationally they were responsible for the death of the Messiah, that they've been looking forward to coming all this time. And they will realize that it was Jesus and they will turn and they will, there will be a revival and they will be assaulted when that happens. And so the way I understand it is many Jews will come into the kingdom of God and then there will be an assault on the city in order to rid the world of this belief. And the Lord allows it. And so we look at that and we scratch our heads and go, how could that happen? There's an assault on Christianity right now. Like that's, that's what you see happening like um, in, in, in our culture as things slip and they move further and further away, like the, the ship has come, it's lost its attachment to the moorings, it's, it's drifting and it's drifting further and further and the, and the more it drifts away, the faster it seems like the, 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 the country drifts away from, from God. And, and so it's not so much about rights um, that's going on, like, like, and I believe in people having rights, right? But I remember, man, when I was growing up in my 20s, and, and there was such a strong push for, um, for, for gay marriage. And, and so like, you can fall into a camp and say, well, if a person is an American, they, they can have the right to in, be engaged in a civil union. But that's not what happened. What happened was an attack on marriage itself. And so marriage is a a Christian concept that God created. And it is between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And so whenever you try to shift that definition, really what you have down, and this is like, I'm not trying to get all political on you, all right? So those of you like squirming a little bit, I'm theological right now, all right? And so what happens is what people don't realize is that the system, like the, one of the words the Bible uses for um, the world, is it's a system. There's a, and there's a God of this world, the prince of the power of the world, the uh, 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 power of the air. He's over the world system. And so the system itself, it's sort of manipulated by the enemy. And if people aren't walking with God, it's easily manipulated. And so what happens when you shift that definition of marriage is you've got an attack on God himself. And so I, I often wondered, you know, when I can remember in my 20s, I wondered, well, if they succeed, because I see things through the world, obviously the lens that I see things through, and I, I see like, men they're so passionate about getting this done. Like, why is it so important? Like, why can't they just live the way they desire to live? And why, why does it have to be encroached upon my beliefs. And, and I remember thinking, once they get this passed, there will be something else because there's a dissatisfaction in the soul. And that's just the way people are. You got to have a purpose. And that's exactly what happened. And now this thing is spiraling out of control. And so now people are fighting this whole thing that has to do with the Equality Act, right? and meaning, which is extremely dangerous for us as a ministry if this thing gets, makes it through the Senate. It shifts everything. Like the Equality Act would potentially mean that, that if somebody that contradicted what we believe the Bible teaches wanted to work here, we would have to allow them to work here. And, and so like there's a, there's a, there's a lot, there's an attack on um, the, the, the belief of God itself. Because when you, when you boil this down, even this whole uh, gender identity thing, that, that, is, that, is an, that is a direct attack on God. And you say, how so? Because what is happening is it's like God makes a person and forms them in his image. And he's the one who chooses what that person will be like. And the person is saying, no. God can't make me what he wants to make me. I will make me what I want to make me. And so we see that, that what happens is there's an assault on, on, on the Judeo-Christian values of the Bible itself. Well, when, it, when we look at this futuristic thing going off in the future, like, like this is nothing, like this is patty cake to what the Bible describes of how bad things will get in the future, and so, like, here we have the city of Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's being, like, assaulted by the world that wants to rid the belief of faith in Christ, faith and, and, and obedience and allegiance to Jesus. And what we see is the Lord allows it. And you're kind of like, God, Jesus, what are you going to do that for, man? Why, why don't you step in and do something, Jesus? You want to kind of be like, um, I think it was uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, when they got upset with somebody in the New Testament, they said, Jesus, should we call down fire? You know? <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, no, we're not going to do that. And so we see that the Lord allows this assault to happen on the city of Jerusalem out in the future. And then we get to verse three. Then, The Lord will go out and he will fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel and you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and, on, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. Here's the second thing we learn. Jesus delivers the city. And so when all seems lost and the city is being assaulted, the Lord himself will join the battle. And his feet, this is fascinating, his feet will land on the very place that he spoke about the end times. In Matthew chapter 24, we have what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus, uh, on the Mount of Olives, preaches and teaches this sermon. The disciples ask him about the things that would come at the end, and he didn't give them everything, but he taught them a lot. And he taught it from the Olivet, or from Mount Olive. This is the first time in the Bible that Mount Olive is called Mount Olive okay? It's pretty fascinating when you stop and think about it. Zechariah, 500 years before the time of Christ, is prophesying that in the future, on the second coming of Christ, not the first coming, he's already prophesied about the first coming of Christ. Remember, he comes in riding on um, a donkey. He comes in, and he's, he's a servant, and he's different than Alexander the Great, who conquered the world by shedding blood, the blood of others. Jesus comes in Rather than riding on a white horse like Alexander the Great, he comes in riding on a donkey and he sheds his own blood to conquer the world. And he conquers it through people coming into his kingdom. And so during that time, like so Zachariah is now prophesying about the second coming of Christ. And he says that on the second coming, when Jesus returns, like we're looking forward to, when he returns, he will come to the Mount of Olives and there are so many things, like it says, that he will come with his holy ones. What's that? That he comes with all of the unfallen, angelic realm. He returns. He comes. And if you read in Matthew chapter 24, you will find that Jesus says, when the lightning strikes in the east and shines unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be, and he will come with all his holy angels. So Jesus says, "I'm coming," and Zechariah said 500 years before Jesus was born that this is how it would happen. And Jesus came and said, "He was God in the flesh. I am the Messiah." And he said, "When I come back the second time, boys, this is what it's going to look like," and it's very similar to what Zechariah is saying. And so. His feet will land on this place, and he will arrive with his angels. And what does he do? As the city is assaulted, he he provides for his people. And so what we have is a miraculous event with this earthquake and the terrain being changed. And so we look at that, and we kind of scratch our heads and go, man, how does that play out? Well, this is very significant, because in the Bible, what we have is we have God moving on the planet in a very powerful way on three different time periods. so like we see, like during the time of the Exodus, so God made a promise to Abraham, I'm gonna turn you into a mighty nation. He makes a promise and then they go into a captivity as a family of about 70 and they grow over 400 years. For four centuries, the Jewish people are in bondage in Egypt. And they start in good relationship with the Pharaoh, but they end in bad relationship with the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is is abusing them as slaves. They're not free. And God miraculously raises up Moses, right? And he delivers the people. And what do we know? There are miracles happening on the planet like have not happened in all of the history of humanity unless you look at the creation story. And so when we think in terms of miracles, do miracles happen today? Yes, yes. Like I've seen things that I I would say, man, that's a miracle. But they don't happen like they happened during the time of Moses. Like you don't see a guy coming out striking water and something miraculous happening like the Nile turning into blood. You don't see a guy coming out and saying, listen, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And all of a sudden frogs come and they're out like they're totally out of control. You say, well, we see some of these things happening, but you don't see a guy causing them to happen. Right? So that is a time period in which miraculous events are very special in biblical history because God is doing something special. He's establishing the Israelites as a nation. He's going to give them a law. He's bringing them out of captivity. He wants all of the surrounding nations to know that these people belong to the real God, not the false God that you're worshiping. That's the whole r- a purpose of Israel. We wonder, why was Israel chosen people? Why were they chosen? They were chosen to teach all of us who God is. You see, God has to communicate with people because he is not a people, right? Right? He's God. He's the creator of people. And so how does he communicate? He makes a promise to a person. And then through prophecy, all of that promise is stamped out in history so that when we look at it, we can see This is not like, this is not some man made thing. There's too much miracle surrounding it. So God allows the miracles to happen to authenticate the messenger so that you can trust that the messenger is actually from God. And so Moses was a mighty prophet from God and he was used and he had a miraculous ability to do things that was very special for that period of time. Now, there were other prophets sprinkled throughout that could do miraculous things. You have um, Jeremiah and and Elijah and Elisha, but they weren't on par with Moses. Like, you look at Mo and you can say, that's the big Mo, right? He's the standard of the Old Testament. The other guys could do some incredible things and, and they had miraculous events surrounding their lives. But no one in the Old Testament does anything like Moses because God is moving in history in a very special way. So that's a time period. And he is, when we go back to that that idea of typology, he is a type of Christ. He's showing us what Christ would be like. He's not Christ, but he's giving us an indication of what Christ would be like as this miraculous power works through him. Then we come to the New Testament. That is the second time period where miraculous events happen. Like nobody nobody could do what Jesus did. And why could Jesus do them? Because he was the prophet, the priest, and the king all wrapped up in one. He was God in the flesh. And he had the ability to walk on water, bring people back from the dead, take blind people and heal them, restore their sight. A man with a shriveled hand, he could restore it. Why? He was showing all the people that he was above normal, natural power and ability. He was supernatural. And so miracles were happening on the planet in a very special way. That's the second time period that we have where in biblical history, where the the miraculous happens in an uncommon way. So again, I'm not saying miracles don't happen right now, but what I'm saying right, that they don't happen the way they did in these two time periods. The third time period is at the end when Jesus returns. And when he comes back surrounding the very last end of the age, right, the, the end of recorded time and the arrival of Christ, there will be miraculous events. And so when we read these things, and, and it says that this earthquake takes place, it's a miraculous event like the parting of the Red Sea um, or the resurrection, And so I don't know if literally it is an actual earthquake or it's something just describing how the terrain is going to be changed. We don't know that for certain. But what we do know for certain is God has acted this way in history before. And when he says something, he does something. And what he's saying right here is he's going to do something supernatural in the future when Jesus returns, and it's going to reshape everything as we know it. As a matter of fact, he says it's like no other day as as what happens is the lights of the world are even shifted, like the seasons even change. So there is a shift in everything that we know. And this is important for us to understand because we need to understand this because it gives us a reason and motivation to passionately pursue the Lord. You see, the devil has tricked most of the church into thinking that when you die, you go to this dreamy state place and you float around with a bunch of people in white robes and you strum on a harp or something. That is not the picture of the Bible. Like you're not going to find that anywhere. You're going to find that on a Hallmark card, right? But you're not finding it in the Bible. Like the Bible very specifically says, Jesus is returning back to this planet that he created in the first place. And what is he going to do? He's claiming it. Like the first time he came to save it. The second time he comes to own it, all right? Come on, man. I got a little bit of chills right there. It's like no other day. Why is there no light? Because Jesus is the light of the world and he's showing the way. We see clearly as he sees. And in verse 8, it says, On that day, watch this, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea, and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord in his name, the only name. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south to Jerusalem, will become like the Araba. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel, to the royal wine presses, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. And so the city is assaulted. Everything seems hopeless and lost. All of a sudden, the Lord intervenes at the second coming of Christ. He delivers the city, and now the city is inhabited. And what this passage teaches us is that Jesus causes living water to flow from the city. This is why Jesus says to the woman at the well Are you thirsty? drink from the water that I have, and you will never thirst anymore. He is the living water, okay? And so when he returns to the planet, his presence will bring physical transformation to the earth. The earth is thirsty. The animal kingdom is thirsty. The the insects are thirsty. All of creation is thirsty, they are thirsty for the living water to once again flow. And when the king returns, it will flow. And everything that is broken will be repaired. Living water will flow freely forever and it will bring healing. And so what we see, verse 9 says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name the only name. This is the Shema. In Deuteronomy, when the people of Israel were given the the law, in Deuteronomy 6 chapter 4, or is it 4-6? It's one of those two. He says, God bless you. 6.4, Six 6.4, God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Jesus said, they ask him what's the greatest commandment? He quotes the Shema. Right here in verse 9, when this happens, what we see is that the Shema, the Lordship of Christ, will be practiced worldwide. Like world, physical, worldwide. It's not practiced right now, Right? People will proclaim that there will be one Lord. Everybody who thought that every other way was right will come to a point in their lives where they recognize we were wrong, Jesus was right. That's why the New Testament teaches that every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And when he returns, man, those who have not been plunged beneath the fountain will mourn and they will cry for rocks to fall on them because they will know they've been living a lie And they will no longer be able to deny it because the real God will show up and he will physically be on the planet. You say, really? He's already been here once. Like, did you know that's what we believe? (laughs) Jesus, God, was already here once. And he says, I'm coming back. And he's left us all of this prophecy to tell us that's what's going to happen in the future. And so the curse, what happens is, the curse will be lifted and paradise will be restored. That's what's going on with this river of life. It physically, man, is pouring through the planet and it's repairing everything that was lost. And the curse of sin is lifted, then. That's why there's prophecies about the lion will lay down with the lamb. He won't eat him anymore. You say, well, how will that work? Won't he get hungry? He will be fed and provided for by the king that made him. And so like all of creation that is broken, he said, well, what will we do? We will work. He said, well, I don't like the work. You don't like the work because the world is cursed, and you're working by the sweat of your brow. There are things that you like about your work. I've been working on Jason's basement, and I like to work. And I really like to do some work that I can turn around and look and go, well, would you look at that? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen those videos, but they're funny, uh, so, but I like to see something I've done, and it feels good. It feels good. Go, Oh, man, I was able to get that done, but then, then I get tired. What would it be like to build things and make things and create things and not get tired and just do it with other people and say, let's see what we can build. What do you want to build? I don't know. Let's build, so Let's build a city. You mean we'll do things like that? Yes. Yes, that's what we were designed to do. We weren't designed to be automatons. We weren't designed to float around on clouds. We were designed to do things, to be creative because we're made in the image of God and he creates and he wants to create with us. And so like the world will be fixed and everything that is broken that causes division and causes pain and causes cancer and causes death and sickness and babies dying will be fixed. (laughs) Like it'll be fixed. And like we will live because the river will flow freely, but we will be active. And like, do you understand we're talking about this planet that we live on? Like, we're so concerned, uh, the world, the culture. You see, that's why the culture's so concerned about the planet. They love it, and they worship it, and it is doomed until they turn their eyes to the Creator because He's the only one that can fix it. It's His. Nobody loves the earth more than the Lord, and when He returns, He will repair it to its per- state of perfection and that's where we will live. We will not be floating around in the sky. We will be living here on the planet. Did you know that? You ever thought about that? See, we, we are, 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 the devil has us duped, man. He's like, well, I, I die, and I'll go be with Jesus, and it'll be like church, and I, I hope Sean the worship is as good as what Sean does. That's not what it is, man. It's not what it is at all. It's a place of activity, It is the fixing of the world, and so Jesus causes living water to flow um, from the city. And then it says in verse 12, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps." Jesus punishes the enemies of the city. What's fascinating is those who do not belong to the Lord will suffer. They will suffer chaos and panic. And it says their flesh will rot while they're standing. What does that mean? How could you more adequately describe suffering than to say that a person is a living and rotting at the same time? The person's not, their flesh will not, it doesn't say their flesh will rot while they're in the graves, it says they'll rot while they're standing. They say, well, well, why? Because they haven't been cleansed by plunging beneath the fountain that was opened on Calvary. Like, that's what the Bible teaches, there's no way around it, man. It doesn't teach universalism, it teaches monotheism. God is Jesus, and Jesus came to save the world. And he allows us to have free will to choose whether or not we will receive that salvation or stand in obstinance and rebellion and say, I do not want a life with God. And if you do not want a life with God, you will not have an eternity with God because he will give you what you want. And that's what we see happening as the enemies are punished. The treasure that is amassed by the unfaithful is used to supply the kingdom. Where have we seen that before? Egypt amassed all this treasure under the leadership of Joseph because he was able to interpret a, a dream um, for the Pharaoh, and he knew a famine was coming, and so he prepared for that famine, and people from all the surrounding areas had to come to Egypt and buy grain from them, so Egypt became a superpower and gained all this wealth, and when God took 400 years later, when God led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, it says that they plunged the people because all of the Egyptians gave them their silver and gold. So everything that Egypt amassed was used 400 years later to fund the building of Israel. And so when it looks like things are going wrong for you and nothing is working out in your life, you need to be reminded God always has a plan. God is always working behind the scenes and God is always concerned about the citizens of his city. And so that is all used to fund and supply the kingdom. Verse 15, it teaches about the animals that they even are suffering. And I already kind of alluded to that. And we move on in verse 16. Then it says, the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no reign. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no reign. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. And all God is doing there is he's painting a picture. See, it's very hard for us sometimes to read prophecy or read anything in the Bible because we think in such, we think like, um, I think I'm using this right, we think in linear thought. We write that way. We write um, chronologically. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's not what what Jewish thought in the Bible is like. It's like this, and then this, and then I'm going to go back over here to this. And so that's what's going on here. It's not all written chronologically. It's written theologically. And so um, what we learn here is that a remnant comes to celebrate with Jesus in the city. But then everybody all these other people it mentions this punishment again what's going on there well during this time uh, at the return of Christ and all of these people that 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 get saved they are the they they are the survivors and so they are believers That during this period that is very difficult, they turn to the Lord. They don't reject him. They are, as we've been learning throughout this series since last March, they are the remnant that exists during this generation. And they come to the city to celebrate the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus has returned. And what do they celebrate? They celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. What is that about? It's a festival that is still celebrated among the Jewish people. It's called the Feast of Booths. And what they did during this period of time is they would come back and they would make pilgrimages and they would set up tents. This is what uh, they would do. It's like one of the festivals that Jesus uh, has a lot of people in town. It's the Feast of Booths. Um, And what what it's um, symbolic of is when they were taken out, of the bondage from Israel or from Egypt, and they're wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and God was the pillar of of fire that led them at night and a cloud by day, then they remember that time. They remember when God brought them out of captivity. And the way they do it is they come and they, they have little tents that they stay in. And what does it symbolize? They're remembering when God tabernacled with them that God dwelt with them through the fire and through the cloud. And so when it says that they will come and remember that festival, it is we will be celebrating that God is now actually tabernacling with us physically. Like, Sometimes I go, I wonder what it would be like to just sit down and talk with Jesus. I'll tell you one day exactly what it's like because I'm gonna do it. Like the physical resurrected Christ. And we will receive resurrected bodies to to tabernacle with him. What does that mean? To live with him. Okay? And then we go on to the last section. It says, On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. What is that about? Well, you have bowls that were used in the temple. See, this all starts to fit together why God takes all this time over throughout history to, to, to lay out this sacrificial system. There were bowls that were used to collect the blood from the animals that were sacrificed. Why did they have to sacrifice anim- animals? Why did God have them do that? Why would he have them kill animals that he created? Because he's reinforcing in their mind that there's a penalty for sin, and there is no remission for sin without the shedding of blood. But none of the animals could get it done, and it was all to point toward the future when Jesus would come in the physical flesh and he would shed his own blood. And they would use a bowl to collect the blood. And then they would use other sacred pots that they could take a part of the sacrifice and they would eat that meat at the festivals as they all communed together as a family, as a nation. And this says that the bowls... Like the bowls for the cooking will be as sacred as the bowls that was used to collect the blood. Not only that, every pot in every home in Jerusalem will be sacred as that bowl. And the bells on the horse's bridles will be sacred. What is going on here is Jesus makes the city holy. Like, like The sacred and the secular are unified for all are made holy as he is holy. And so, like, we look at that and we go, man, I realize that I have the holiness of Christ when I plunge beneath the fountain, my soul is made holy so that God can look at me. And what happens is God sees me as holy, but I still have a hard time sometimes seeing myself as holy, especially when I say things that may be rude, you know, especially when I might lose my temper, especially when I think a thought and I'm going, man, why am I thinking that thought? And I realize I have a hard time seeing myself as holy because I'm still living in this tent of flesh that is not made for this place. But it too shall be made holy as I will receive a resurrected body that I will live forever with Christ and it will be holy as Christ is holy. Everything is made holy. And so not only does God see me holy, I'm able to see myself as holy because God just made me holy upon his return, and he, there is no more sacred and secular, it's all together, man, everything is holy unto the Lord, and that's what is taking place, and then it says no Canaanite, no unbeliever is what that is, it's de, like it's, it, it, sometimes that, that phrase is used, the descendants of Cain, and, and so they, uh, no unbelievers will be there, why, because they're unholy, Why are they unholy, Jimmy? I don't want people to be unholy. I don't either. But if people don't plunge beneath the fountain that cleanses them from their sin, they're unholy. And that's what's wrong with our world is we got a lot of people running around saying, I know Jesus, and they're unholy. They've never been cleansed of their sin. They don't have a hatred for sin. They're trying to have a love for God without a hatred of sin. There's no transformation that take place in their lives because they've never plunged beneath the fountain and been changed by the creator of the universe. And they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. And so our world is broken. And it spirals out of control. And if America doesn't have a spiritual revival where churches get back to teaching the word of God and making disciples that make disciples, then America will not last. It just won't. And it, and it won't be because we go back to Washington and get those guys to think like we want them to think. It will be because we start being the church. and We start functioning on the planet with the power that God wants us to function with. That's what made this country so great in the first place. It wasn't the politician. It was the Christian sold out to God that he was giving allegiance to him. And he knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, not just Savior that protects me for eternity, but a Lord that I yield to in obedience every single day. And so the big idea is the river of life turns brown things green, all right? Now, I'm gonna read a couple of lengthy passages, but I wanna show you something real quick, because you look out at that and you go, wow! What about tomorrow? This happens to the physical in the future, but it's spiritually available now. Jesus sometimes allows us to be assaulted. Why was this man born blind? Was it his father's sin or his mother's? This man was born blind for the glory of God to be revealed in his life. Peter is in prison and they're making supplication. Lord, let, can you deliver the apostle Peter? They're gonna kill him. And he doesn't get delivered until the night before he's to be executed. Lazarus is sick and they send word to Jesus and say, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. Come heal him and Jesus delays and waits. And he lays in the ground for four days before Jesus returns. And then he goes and he says he's dead and I'm glad that he's dead so that you can see the glory of God. And so God sometimes allows us to be assaulted and it feels like all is lost. But you know what he does is right at that point that we feel like we're about to break He delivers. And when he delivers that way, we look at it, we go, it is the Lord, man. He just showed up in my life and delivered me. He provided for me. And not only do I see it, but the others walking around me see it as well. They see that God does things in my life that he doesn't do in their lives. And guess what they want? They want to know that God that is delivering me. But if he's never delivering you, how are your friends ever going to see the glory of God in your life? And you will not be assaulted by the enemy unless you are a threat to the enemy. And if you are asleep at the will, he will let you sleep and do nothing to wake you. Jesus causes living water to flow from me, through me. Remember the imagery of the golden pipe and the oil is brought to the planet and I become the light of the world as the Holy Spirit flows through me. The river of life flows through me, man. It flows through me. And touches others around me. The enemies that come against me, oftentimes I don't even know when they're punished, but I believe that God, his wrath moves to protect me. The scripture teaches me that as I walk by faith and not by sight, that I don't take vengeance for myself, but I leave room for God's wrath. I'm to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me because God will deal with them right now. Not in the future when he returns to do it physically, but spiritually he's doing it in my life right now. And a remnant comes to celebrate Jesus with me. <laughs> when I came, this church was empty. And I've been believing the Lord that he would bring people to celebrate and they're coming and more will come as my life is used for the gospel and God brings people around me and they get impacted by the gospel truth, but not by some cool experience, but the actual truth of the word of God penetrating their hearts. And he gathers people around you as you go and you are faithful to do what God asks you to do. He will allow you to invite people into your life to walk with them and the gospel will move in their lives and they will celebrate Jesus with you right now. And then in the future, all of those people who have learned that, who've been a remnant of every generation, who have been protected, they will live and occupy the city and celebrate with Jesus at the great marriage supper of the Lamb as he takes and makes all things new and he makes everything holy and we sit with him. Today we'll observe communion in a little while. And why do we do that? Because Jesus said, I will not partake of this again until I do it with all of you in the future kingdom. And so we take communion and we remember that he gave his body for us. He spilt his blood for us. And one day in the future, he's coming back to the planet. He will fix it all. And then we will eat with the Lord. We will commune with him. And we will commune with each other. Your life is more than mammon. It's more than money. The God of the universe is what, the one that your life is all about. And he wants to walk with you and use you. In ministry. And so here we see in these closing readings. Listen to this Ezekiel 47. A different prophet, a different time. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outside or outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was ankle deep. Then he led me back to the bank of the river and when I arrived there I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river and he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the Shore from Mengeti to Eneglium, and there will be places for spreading nets, and the fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them, their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Come on, man, I'm swimming in the river. I'm not wading around in the ankle-deep part. I'm swimming in the river. And what this is teaching me is that the brown, wherever the river goes, it touches things, and it takes them from brown to green. They come to life, man. They spring to life. And, man, I, 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 like I know, I know we've taken some time, but I, I think I would be doing a disservice to the kingdom if I didn't have you look at this passage in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, listen to this. See if it sounds familiar to all I've taught you today. Then the angels showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever and the angel said to me these words are trustworthy and true the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets sent this angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place behold I am coming soon blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book I John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard, had heard and, and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. And he said to me, "Do not do it, I'm a fellow servant with you. and with your brothers, the prophets and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God." And then he told me, "Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right and let him who is holy continue to be holy behold i am coming soon my reward is with me and i will give to everyone according to what he has done i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city Outside are the dogs and those who practice magic arts and sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bride and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with his with God's people. Amen. (laughs) Like, man, like, that's what it's all about. It's like we're moving toward that city. And if that don't create some urgency in you and some fire in your belly to follow Jesus with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, nothing will. Nothing will. Like, what you want to make sure is that your kids are citizens of the city that your spouses are citizens of the city, that people that you do life with are citizens of the city. He says, Let all like the people who are in the city, he says, are the ones who have the clean robes. They've been washed. And what? That fountain they plunged beneath, and their sins were forgiven. And they are the ones who are citizens, citizens of the city. And everyone else remains outside in the marshes, that has nothing but death in them. But the river of life runs through the city and those who are citizens are glad to see the city of God. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head, close your eyes. We're gonna partake of communion and be dismissed. But today, man, today may be a day that you plunge beneath the fountain. You go, whoa, man, like, I just had some truth dropped on me and I need to like give my life. I want to plunge. I want to be a citizen of that city. Listen, it's your life. And you're the only one that can plunge beneath the cleansing fountain. And all you do is you you confess to Jesus that you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven of your sins. And you say, I'm ready for you to come. And reign as Lord and Savior in my life, and I'm going to give my allegiance to you. No longer do I call the shots in my life, Jesus. You call the shots. You lay down your life, and Jesus will come tabernacle with you spiritually, and you will be ready to tabernacle with him in the future physically. And so I would encourage you to pray that prayer of salvation if you've never done that. You talk to the Lord. Those of you online, the same thing. I would just encourage you wherever you're sitting to receive the Lord and be cleansed by the fountain. And then before we proceed and take communion, like all I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer and I'm going to come and sit and I'm going to take communion with you. And I'm going to remember like the Lord and what makes me right in my relationship with him. And so like if there are things in my life that the Lord brings to my attention that I know that I'm being disobedient in, I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to repent in that moment. Now I'm going to approach the cup, the elements of the bread and the juice in a worthy manner. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. And as Sean closes out the service with this song of, of worship, that you would just partake when you feel led of the Lord to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for decisions (laughs) that are being made for citizens coming into the city today, the city of transformation. (laughs) Lord, I pray that you give them the courage to share about their decision with someone else. I thank you for these people that you've gathered around me, Lord, to celebrate the kingdom And I thank you, Lord, not only for the future of your return, but all that you're going to use us to do in our immediate future to prepare for your return. All of the people who are going to come in and become citizens of your city as a result of you planning us here in this this place in time. Thank you for us having the opportunity to serve alongside of you. Have your way in this ministry. We love you, Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.